Miles, welcome to the show. I see you've spent some time in Omaha. So I guess my first question is, uh, do you have any uh, uh, insights into what Warren Buffett is doing these days? Did you meet with him uh, when you spent a lot of time in Omaha? Uh, I have been to his Berkshire Hathaway Investors Conference before, uh, so that's cool. It was really fun. Uh, He is not – I mean, he's – lives in a kind of a small house in the middle of Omaha that you can walk by and drive by and just see him walking around eating ice cream or whatever. Uh, it's not really a big deal to see him around town, which is kind of funny. But doesn't he eat uh, at Dairy Queen? Isn't that like one of his many investments? And I think, I guess maybe that's where he got the ice cream if he's walking around eating it. Yeah, he, he does the Dairy Queen uh, and McDonald's is a big one for him too. And uh, Coca-Cola as well. So he's uh he's i don't know how healthy he's treating his body but uh i mean it's good for his wallet i guess so well, i was gonna say this is a man that's lived right he's made billions of dollars he's essentially uh made money on fast food colas and ice cream all of which i like to consume i try not to consume it but i do like to consume it and then he's gone on to be uh to, to be worth billions and i think he's at least in his 70s maybe his 80s so he's he's done it right yeah. i don't think he's uh He's probably not too worried at this point. You know, at that point, when you're an 80, you just eat what you want. You, you eat as much ice cream as you can possibly eat. I like it. Yeah, that's true. That's but true. I, you said something earlier. I mean, I've actually never – I've heard about – I think his investor meeting is somewhat legendary. You know, about it like, It's kind of like a – I don't know. It almost sounds like a, sort of like a, a festival slash like, I don't know, come, come – um, I don't know. Not cult, I won't say, but a, a very passionate set of fans. So, like, what's it like? Is it is it is it like that, or is it like a conference? Like, what happens there? Yeah, it's weird. Um, so, the largest stadium in Omaha um, is it's changed names a few times in the past few years, but just a huge stadium where they have all sorts of concerts and big events, and uh, they hold the uh, U.S. Olympic swim trials there every year. Like, huge, huge place. And once a year for Berkshire Hathaway Investor Conference, it's I guess it's not a conference. It's, you know, it's a shareholders meeting. Right. So you have to have a share in order to go or you have like I did. I had a friend who was a shareholder that was like, I don't want to go. Do you guys want to go? And we went and the entire place is packed. It is just packed, packed, packed. I mean, you would think that you were going to a rock concert. There are just so many people at this big arena and uh and then you get in there and you get to your seat and like the floors packed with people, all the seats are packed all the, up to the rafters. And then just there's a little modest stage with a little table and two guys in their 80s come out with Cokes and sit down and just <laughs> chill for two hours, two, three, four hours. Like they just sit there and, you know, just they have like a little slide projector thing and they're like, yeah, look at some numbers and look at some graphs, and then uh, then they take questions from the audience. And all around the arena, people can go to a microphone and ask questions, and then they just answer them. And it's just it's just it uh, it really feels like it, it's weird because it feels like just you know just kind of hanging out. But it's weird that it's so many people just sitting there hanging out. Like, that's what's so weird about it. Uh, the the part that got me that was really interesting, I didn't realize. I mean, I always knew Buffett was kind of a value-based investor. But I also didn't realize how much they put into teaching people about business. And I didn't know this, but there's like a whole 
like 20 episode cartoon that Warren Buffett created that like teaches kids the basics of business. Uh, and, uh, and he's like really, really into just fundamentals and understanding your business. It's why he's like, like never wants to invest in technology because he just doesn't understand technology. I think he still has like a corded phone in his office. Right. Like, I mean, he, uh, and, so yeah, it's it's interesting. I, it's really interesting to go if there is a chance. No, that's cool. Well, that sounds like fun. Yeah, we'll have to dig up the links. I know um, the reason he was sort of on the mind is you know kind of before all of uh, the crash and everything, he was um, somewhat famously. I think they were kind of kidding because I, I think he did finally break down and he bought a bunch of Apple, but uh, he had like upgraded his uh, flip phone, I guess, to an iPhone. Yeah. <laughs> and it, it sort of like made news yeah. in a. In a in about of itself which uh which was funny like on cnbc he's like yeah you know he's like i just but it just kind of shows i guess you don't need to know the product to know a good business you're just like i don't know these iphones are doing well i'm gonna buy them so he seems yeah to figure yeah that that, out. i mean that was also after a decade experiment of losing a bunch of money on ibm for him too uh so uh yeah i think i don't know he still won't invest in very many other stocks, but I think with Apple, he just feels like he's missing out if he doesn't <laughs> do something there, you know? Yeah, no, I know. I read the IBM investment. So, yeah, so he didn't do so well in IBM. He's probably done yeah. – well, I guess up until recently he's done well in Apple, but, like, he – I don't know. Yeah. He's done – I don't think we need to worry about him. He's not the one we're, we're worried about no. now. So All right, well, it sounds uh, like you recommend it. We should – everyone should go. Yeah. I guess you have to buy a share, so that's not – as last time I checked – Sure, it's discounted. It's it's not. It's it was. They're still pretty expensive. So you, maybe you got to yeah, know somebody. Or you got to be ready. Or something. Yeah, mm-hmm. yeah. All right. Well, good. Well, that's uh, that's uh, that's our. That we'll conclude our uh, stock investing uh, recommendations for the, <laughs> the podcast. Go <laughs> go do what uh, Warren Buffett does. But uh, you know, the reason I wanted to have you on the show is you know we were talking offline a little bit about you know, containers and, you know, what developers should do. And this has, you know, obviously been a hot topic for years now. And um, I know that you had started uh, Container Heroes, right? So I thought it'd be great to have you on and, you know, kind of get a sense of uh, what you're seeing out there and kind of your recommendations uh, for all the things that are happening. So let's start with maybe, you know, the simplest thing is uh, what exactly is Container Heroes and uh, why did you start that? Yeah, so... Container Heroes is really just kind of a collective of four different cloud consultants. So we um, kind of independently, but also we kind of met each other through consulting uh, through Google. And so we would we would get hired to go uh, represent Google at some of their largest GCP customers and migrations. And um, and yeah, we had a lot of experience there. And so the four of us just enjoyed working together. And we said, you know. Uh, we're having a lot of fun and making some good cash, like helping all these really big companies, but we're learning so much about infrastructure, cloud native type computing, all these types of things that you'd want to do. And, and how can we help smaller companies, small and medium sized companies learn from what we're learning here, right? How can we make it easier to adopt? How can we make it faster to onboard kind of best practices and, uh, and how can we help small and medium sized companies? And so that's what we kind of came, we, Threw a name together, Container Heroes. I don't know who who came up with the idea or whatever, but yeah, the gist of the company is just um, four experienced enterprise cloud consultants just um, trying to lend our expertise and what we've learned to smaller, small and medium sized companies. 
Yeah, so it makes sense. So it sounds like you started in professional services, at least you were doing that a little bit for Google, as you mentioned. Like what what kind of clients and um, I guess what kind of problems and issues or projects did you actually do when you, you represented? Can you talk, talk about some of those? Yeah, definitely. So um, they would usually um, excuse me, fall under one of two categories. So like either a large migration. So like I worked for several months with one client that was moving from five physical data centers to entirely GCP, right? Um, and so that was obviously just, you know, a very long involved process of moving the entire company, winding down a whole bunch of hardware and moving everything into Google Cloud, right? Um, that also was a move from VMs to containerization to Kubernetes. So there was part of that migration as well. Um, the other kind of bucket of engagements were kind of more application development type where, you know, they were like, hey, we, you know, we are up and running, things are going okay, but we really want to, you know, 10x our scale or something like that in the next month or something, right? So how do we how do we do that and how do we do that correctly on Google using these tools, you know, whatever the infrastructure application choices are, right? And so we got brought in to an existing scenario and saying, hey, we're going to take you kind of level up, level up where you're at. Um, already in the cloud and level up your application to handle more traffic or load or new regions or whatever it is, right? Right. So was it, you know, it's always interesting because, you know, I can understand why you pick Container Heroes. That's obviously, Containers was obviously like a catchy name and it gets people's attention. Yeah, but yeah. but um, what I found, right, sometimes like in the migrations and kind of you're describing is sometimes it's, you know, they're not even, they're not necessarily thinking about containers or you know, ready for containers. Sometimes they're like redoing an app. Sometimes they're just trying to embrace the cloud. So like, what is, what is your experience when you kind of talk to these, um, you, the customers that you, you're interacting with, are they, have they already kind of committed to like either they have containers or they bought into containerization or are they just sort of like, I've got a bunch of VMs maybe in you know, various different platforms and just trying to make, uh, make it work on the cloud. Like what do you see out there? Yeah. The, People that we've interacted with, and maybe this is just because we've mainly worked with people on GCP, they're already bought into containerization. And you know, one of the reasons people pick GCP over other places is the you know managed Kubernetes offering. Given that Google kind of invented Kubernetes, right? So um, most of the people we've we've seen already kind of bought into containers. Um, I think all from sort of from the architecture point of view, but also from a um, an organizational point of view, you know, it's, it's really nice when you onboard a new developer, they can get clone a repo and do Docker build or, you know, a make file and, and just get up and running immediately, right? Like all of the necessary things can be very easily installed and pulled in via Docker and just running on a, a machine, whether it's a Mac or windows or Linux box or whatever. Right. Um, so, yeah, most everyone we've talked with are kind of already bought into containers. Um, it's more the orchestration or the architecture or the different regions and zones and all those types of other questions that uh, kind of are the are the main things we help people with. Okay, so kind of interesting there. Like, so let's drill into that. So, like, take me through like a project. So, if I'm a I'm a company, maybe I've you know containerized you know s some parts of my apps or at least some of it, and I've at least know. Mm -hmm know how to do that part and then maybe i've 
certainly read about Kubernetes, and I've you know been right. uh, uh, indoctrinated into all the all the greatness of Kubernetes. Uh, but I'm not, you know, I haven't maybe like figured out like exactly how to how to use it. So if that's kind of the setting, and if that sort of represents the customers, like what do you, what do you do when you kind of show up on site? Like how do you kind of get a project going with them? Yeah, um, I, I guess. Yeah, there are so many different ways to go about thinking about that. I mean, you can most of the time when we've talked to people like Kubernetes, they're already kind of on board with, right? Like you could take a step back in your organization and think about, okay, we have things running in a container, but maybe we're not ready to learn exactly all of Kubernetes and and all of its tendencies or whatever. And, you know, for instance, on Google, you can run a, GCE virtual machine instance from a container, right? Mm -hmm. um, so that's obviously like a really next easy kind of nice step forwards is if you already kind of understand managed instance groups and load balancing and GCE, um, you can say instead of creating, you know, GCE instance templates that are based on Packer or something, right? you can say maybe we should just they should just be docker containers right right build a build a container run a simple gcloud command that creates the instance template with that container right and mm -hmm. then you're doing the exact same things that you were doing when you were just generating the instance template with packer right and you're talking um, you say gce right just so everyone it's you're talking about google yeah. compute engine right so this is just essentially yeah. just run a, a vm or a server yep. and i'll just throw my container on it so that's that's like yep. probably the maybe the easiest way to start, right? No matter what you're doing, just like get a server, put a container on it, yeah. you're ready to go, right? Yeah, that's definitely the easiest way to think about it if you are coming from the world of VMs. If you currently have an architecture where, you know, you have a managed instance group of, you know, four or five VMs, right? And you're using an instance template and that managed instance group can auto scale up and down your VMs, Um and that's all behind a load balancer, and that's how you're serving traffic for your application, then the obviously like next point of integration with a Docker container is to say, let's base our VM instance template off of a Docker container rather than like a Packer image or something like that. Okay, so I think that's like a good um, stopping point there to kind of like just say, okay, okay. I'm a customer, right? And yeah. that's, I, I think a lot of the people because so many people are familiar with VM and VMware, right? That feels like maybe yeah. what everyone's been doing, I don't know, for at least the last decade, maybe longer. And so that's, I think, a good kind of question. is like, I got my load balancers up. I feel good. I even maybe containerized yep. it. So if I'm then, and, and then I think if we're having the conversation, it's like, okay, you know, the next step or the next conversation we could have is like, well, maybe I should move to some type of container orchestrator, right? Kubernetes. Right. And so how do you walk through that decision process with the client um, giving them guidance around, you know, pro cons of actually kind of maybe taking that next big step into the world of uh, containers and Kubernetes. Right. So, yeah, it, it's like with anything, it's an investment, right? So, I mean, I think first, the, some of the downsides are you're investing a lot of time into learning about Kubernetes, how to set it up, how to manage it, how it works, um, what you need to do. I think the benefits are, you know, you can, it's, well, the way I like to describe Kubernetes is really a layer of abstraction above the hardware of individual VM instances, right? 
Um, and what I mean by that is you can tell Kubernetes, hey, run my application, but you don't really care which piece of hardware it's actually being run on, right? And you don't even really care if that piece of hardware is running 10 other applications, right? You just care that it can run your application that you told it to run, right? And so in some ways you can, especially at small and medium-sized companies, you can actually conserve quite a bit of hardware by running multiple applications on the same piece of hardware, right? Or at larger companies, um, you know, we, in certain performance situations, will find that certain instance type sizes work better than others when it comes to certain networking issues or performance issues. And we can, um, you know, have multiple instances of your application running on a really big instance, right? Um, and and so I think there's a lot of a lot of benefits there that make it a lot more um, elastic or dynamic um, architecture for you to be able to run multiple applications, multiple instances, um, and just be a lot more flexible without necessarily having to care about the hardware underneath the hood necessarily. And I think that's a really good long-term play for your organization and your company to not to kind of separate to further separate your application with the hardware and infrastructure underneath it, right? That's kind of one of the main advantages of Kubernetes is that it's very declarative. It's very, hey, I've got my application, run it. I don't really care how you actually make that happen. I don't care where it happens, just run the dang thing, right? Um, so it's a really, really good thing for your organization long-term, but it definitely is an investment um, upfront if you're coming from the VM world. Yeah, so I think that's always you know the, the interesting part of these these questions, um, and I always th like to think through it kind of around this. It's like, well, I mean, if if you just have a small application and you, it's generally doing what you want, maybe you're not even going to make that much changes to it, right? Or you know, you can do some minimal um, investment, have a really small team, then then maybe just you know building the container, managing the servers, right? It's it's that's all you need, you know. It's like it, it maybe wouldn't be worth the uh, the investment to step up, but I think it's the, the flip side of that is. When you think you're going to have like lots of different scale um, scaling challenges going forward, or you're like in a very large organization, you're running lots of different applications, and you want to really you know think about maximizing your investment in uh, various you know uh, technology or infrastructure, then you know maybe you do kind of start steer or, or steer an organization towards kind of like a standard way of doing it, and then you know use, utilizing things like Kubernetes um, as well. So you know I, you know again, I think it's. I guess the thing I always think about is it's it's not necessarily the right choice for all applications, and it's okay, right? If you, like I said, if you're more on the yeah. smaller side, like don't you know, don't let everyone just like you know talk you into it, right? Like don't don't feel like you're missing out. Like you're fine, you're fine. Just use well, you know, I, grow into it. Yeah, yeah. And I also I actually wouldn't necessarily say it has to do with the size of your company because there are a lot of people who start small companies and actually start out with Kubernetes because. There are a lot of advantages, actually, to using Kubernetes as a small company. For instance, I can run like my staging environment and my production environment in the same Kubernetes cluster on maybe two VMs, right? Maybe mm -hmm. I'll have to have them on different namespaces to make sure I'm not collaborating anything or whatever. But maybe I'm only paying for two small VMs, right, um, that are my Kubernetes cluster rather than having six VMs that like because I have one uh, of each application and one staging environment, one production environment, you know, three production, three staging or whatever, right? Like, oh, or I'm going to experiment with a bunch of different applications and I just want it to run and I can, you know, 
put, run those on the same pieces of hardware and just pay a lower hardware cost to Google, right? Mm-hmm. Um, so there are advantages. I would more say it's kind of what tool set you existingly have. If you already have you know, people and processes that work really well for VMs, then I wouldn't, you know, I wouldn't, I would jump into Kubernetes when you're ready to, you know, uh, I wouldn't force it. Um, it's something that I think is good for companies in the long run. But if you're, if you're happy and things are working fine, uh, then stick with it. Right. Um, (laughs) but, um, but yeah, I, I, I guess I wouldn't necessarily tie it to the size of the company. I would tie it to what your experience is because there are a lot of people that are kind of get converted into the Kubernetes world. And then when they go to start their next small company, they, uh, just start off in Kubernetes, right? Right. This is what they know. Well, let's talk about that. That's, I, yeah. I mean, those are actually, that's a really interesting use case. A lot, probably a lot of entrepreneurs out here, people want to start companies. So, so let's say, yeah. so say I'm building just any web mobile app, right? Going you know, to, yeah. you know, kind of start that out. And so, um, and maybe this, you know, kind of going slightly stuck on a touch on kind of a different thing, which you, you kind of mentioned was like, okay, I'm brand new. I, you know, you kind of mentioned dev test and staging, um, mm-hmm. and I want to kind of get everything set up. So while I may be a, a, a small group of people today, right. What we all aspire to is build like really exciting, big, large companies that at least applications, right. That hopefully yeah. thousands of people, tens of thousands, even more will start to use. So. So if I, let's just say I've kind of written something up in Node, I've got my MVP, I've got something kind of working, right? But uh, I want to spend a little time kind of like, if you will, designing the the organization and the tools so that I don't have to, if you will, like in six months, like start over. So how do you kind of consult with somebody kind of thinking through that process? Like what should they do? What should they set up? What kind of technology choices should they be making? Six months is a long time in the startup world, but it's a and it feels sometimes like a long time in the tech world, but it's also a really short amount of time. So I wouldn't necessarily even change much uh, after a few months, just a few months. Um, I, I guess what the things I would be thinking about, um, I mean, I have a lot of my experience in Kubernetes, obviously. So if I were just starting a new company, the I would probably start on a, with a very small Kubernetes cluster. I guess one of the ways to answer your question and one of the ways that we help when we go into very large enterprises too, is we start to think about the developer experience and the developer deployment process. So one of the ways we would help people get on board with Kubernetes is to show them, okay, what's this path from my code in my repo to an application running on hardware, right? And, um, there are a lot of different ways to do that. Um, at some bigger companies, you know, we use some really great tools that are you know, running applications, running on a Kubernetes cluster like Jenkins or Spinnaker, um, things like that, or, um, you know, build tools in the existing cloud platform. So if I were to start from like completely from scratch today, um, you know, one of the things we do, I always do in any kind of Git repo that I'm in is usually have a make file with, you know, different steps of building the Docker container, um, creating a Kubernetes manifest of that says how to run my Docker container. And then, um, and then usually, um, a, I, a cloud build is Google's build, um, build, uh, service managed service. 
to walk through those steps, right? To say, build, I pushed to my Git repo, cloud build picked up on that, it created the Docker container, it uh, created my Kubernetes manifests, and it applied my application to the Kubernetes cluster, right? And then, great, I'm up and running. Yes, there are other tools I could use to make it better. Yes, I could use Jenkins. Yes, I could do really complex, sophisticated deployments with Spinnaker. Awesome. But like right now, all I want is like I wrote some code, committed it to the repo, (laughs) pushed it, and now I have an application running somewhere, right? So would you? I mean, that's sort of the beginning of like your what we call the pipeline, right? The continuous integration, right. continuous. I guess in that case, it's really the continuous deployment, right? Because you would deploy it at the end. So that's sort of, if you will, you're you drag. You, I don't know. I guess you're pushing the client or the customer into like, okay, let's build a very simple CI/CD pipeline to get you started. Yep. Okay. Yep. And then they can see like, okay, great, my application's running. Um, and from there, they can bring up all sorts of other questions that we get down the line of like, okay, well. Um, how do I promote to production, right? How do I, what happens when we do PRs in the repo? What happens when I want to have six different production environments because I want six different regions all over the world, right? Um, what about I need to tweak my, the Kubernetes manifest because I want it to be a stateful set versus uh, um, a deployment or something, right? Like all sorts of little things like that are kind of like the next level questions. And that's where people get really, into the meat of it all but it feels like one of the best ways to get people kind of on the hook is to show them this you know initial have something initially set up that Mm -hmm. works and then we can then they can it's simple it's understandable we're all engineers and like can we all get excited about okay how does this actually work and then we get to see the innards of how it actually works and once we understand that then from there we can mutate and evolve and ask other questions Right. And then I think, you know, we kind of like go back to what you said earlier, right? And then this is maybe the place where then you can start to introduce, well, because we've done it this way, because we're using Kubernetes containers that like, okay, now we want another environment, right? You're like your development or your test environment, kind of what you said earlier, right? You're just saying, well, we can just yep. reuse the same cluster, right? Versus that would usually yep. be like another set of VMs, right? Or potentially another yeah. group of VMs. So, I mean, I think while all of this stuff, maybe at the beginning, we're probably not talking about, you know, millions of dollars here, right? But I do think everybody, um, I always think, you know, people, like, I guess cloud sticker shock can happen faster than you think sometimes, right? So I think this is a place where you're saying, well, you put in this upfront effort, then, you know, um, you're really going to, you know, by doing this, right, you're going to really maximize your uh, investment in um, kind of this in- cloud infrastructure, right? Get more out of it so that everyone can have uh uh, access to development and test and not really spend tons of money on that, at least not running up big cloud bills behind the scenes. Yeah, definitely. And uh, yeah, like you said, that upfront investment on just that little initial kind of hello world end to end pipeline is really helpful to get people off and running. And, and that's kind of the starting point for container heroes actually, is we want to, we want to expose more of those, kind of starter steel thread, okay, here's kind of a base what you need to know, and here's something that's working in your cloud environment that you can then poke around, you can understand, you can make tweaks um, from there. And so that's that's kind of like our first kind of product is helping, providing these kind of steel end, uh, steel thread starter kits almost where people can just be up and running immediately, see how, see the, how the entire process works, and then after they understand that, they can go from there. So how does within that kind of that starter kit, because I think one 
thing that comes up a lot of times is, okay, well, we're going to, you know, ideally store most applications. We're going to store some level of data, you know, information in the database likely, or, I mean, maybe there's other ways, right? But we're going to need to store something, some level of persistence. And so as you, and I, I think that can sometimes be tricky, right? Like where exactly is the data going to be stored and how um, are we going to use it from within the application that we're deploying here in Kubernetes? So do you, like, where, where does that come into play as you're kind of walking them through this process? Are you recommending, like, databases as a service products or their own databases? Is this, like, part of kind of the, the, the product or the advice that you're giving them? So the way we were starting to think about it is kind of very common setups. So I have a web application, and like you said, I have a database, right? And there are a whole bunch of options over there around what you could do, all sorts of different technologies and tools. But kind of what we're starting with, um, either as just you can get up and running or um, or I can understand how it fits into the architecture and then I can replace it later, are the simple kind of managed uh, SQL offerings. So for GCP, that's like Cloud SQL, right? Um, and most, most applications up and running, they have a use for structured data like that. And a lot of times that's where they start. And so we can show them okay, here's a hello world that integrates with the SQL database. And so you can see where the integration points are and how it talks to the other. If you want to switch that MySQL to Postgres or something, cool, knock yourself out. Here's how you make the change. It's your cloud account. It's your infrastructure as code repo. Like, do whatever the heck you want. Um, but if you want to switch to something completely different or add on something completely different, like, it's totally yours and you can do that too. And um, it's completely modular. But... I think for for us, for our you know our goal is to help engineers understand how these things fit together, so that then when they want to make a change or they want to integrate a new service, it's not such a daunting task because they can see kind of how you take four, five, six, seven different pieces of cloud services and stitch them together into make a, a really nice uh, scalable you know cloud native infrastructure. Makes sense. So it's and we've got our domain logic got that deployed. We we're going to use one of the popular database uh, as a service offerings, right? Because I think that's how most people start. And those honestly, those seem like of all the things you pay for, it feels like that's well worth the money, right? Don't, like, I don't know. It's just nice, it's just like someone else deal yep. with this database for me. Thank you. Um, and then I think the other question that then comes up and you know, like get your take on it is okay. Well, we're um, almost every application we're going to have to let our users register and then authenticate. Right. And then there's, there's a lot of different options out there to, to kind of facilitate that. So is that like a common question that you get? And do you have like a kind of a, a standard recommendation for someone to say, like, okay, here's a good way to start with user authentication. That'll get you going and, you know, kind of get you down the path of, you know, hopefully letting users use your application. Yeah. You know, um, most of the large enterprises, when, especially when they're doing migrations already have kind of a, a user authenticated, you know, design and architecture and system in place. And so for us, it's not necessarily recommending a new thing or service to use, but it's just helping them migrate, you know, that service. Right. Is that uh, usually like, active directory or some form of that behind the scenes or what are they doing? So, so Active Directory often maps then to like uh, Google Apps and G Suite accounts, right? And so there's that whole kind of like cloud migration of just like more IT department type things. From a application perspective, when you're authenticating users, usually the enterprise will have an existing service that 
you know, application developers will be in charge of saying, you know, where are we storing uh, these emails and hashes of passwords and how are we validating them and uh, how are we returning a cookie or or a token or something else, right? And so it's just yet another application to migrate, right? Uh, It's kind of, and how it ends up working for some of these larger companies is the authentication piece is just another just another microservice or just another service component to migrate over is how it ends up being. Um, for people that are just like starting out completely fresh, um, yeah, I, there are some really good options out there um, that are either on cloud providers like Google has Firebase, which is a, a really good option. Um, there's Auth0. Um, there's, there are other people um, out there that can that can help with with some of that um but that's that's yeah it's uh i mean that's usually one of the way one of the things too like i my application development background where i do i've done a bunch of java for enterprise people but i personally love ruby on rails and so like a, a, a library like devise where you just have authentication up and running and uses a good um encryption algorithm to create hashes and store things and then be able to, you know, have a user cookie set and things like that uh, in a session. Like there are good developer tools for doing that kind of stuff too. Uh, the only advice I guess I would really give to people is do not roll your own. Um, don't, you know, don't be trying to create your own um, hashing algorithms or anything like that. Um, use existing tools out there because uh, that's where you get in trouble. Yeah, no, I think that's a hundred percent agreement there, right? That seems to be the, and I, you know, but I do think it's interesting as kind of discussed here. It's like, no matter what you're doing, especially if you're starting in the beginning, I do, I kind of feel like every startup, at least from the technology side, it really is kind of starting the same. It's like, you have to kind of figure out what I want to write my domain logic in, right? So whatever node, Ruby, something along those lines, that's going to be probably very dictated by your previous experience. Then you got to figure out where you're going to save it. So like you said, many different database hosts out there. Of course you can do your own thing. And then how are we going to let people register and sign it? Right. So it's like, it's almost like, doesn't matter like what you're building. Like you need to start there. That is like step one, like making all of those decisions. And then from that, once you lay that foundation, now you can start to build out, you know, the thing that's going to make your app great. Right. And so I don't, you know, to me it is, you know, like we talked about before, it's like, you know, um, six months is not a long time, but it can be a long time. I always think this is, especially when people are bootstrapping and things like that, I always think this is the kind of stuff you can kind of just do behind the scenes. Like no matter what you're going to do, you're going to have to get all this set up. So maybe as you're like recruiting people or getting feedback on your idea or, you know, trying to you know finalize your requirements, like this base infrastructure of authentication, domain logic, storage, right? Like it has to be yeah. done and it's fine to do it kind of before, if you will, the pressure starts, right? Get it all set up because like anything else in life, it'll, it'll pay off so far down. Um, uh, or make your life so much easier, if you will, if you, if you set it up right versus, uh, and then you probably had the same experience I had, whereas you get in the middle of a project and people are just like, uh, now we have to stop and spend a month just like making stuff work again because it's just chaos, yeah. right? Chaos is just taken yep. over. Yep. So to that end, I mean, I think you mentioned Google a lot and I mean, I think I know the answer here, but I'll just, we'll just talk about it is, 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 does it ever make sense if I'm going to go down this Kubernetes route? I mean, should I... Should I pretty much always be picking, you know, one of these cloud vendors, whether it be AWS, Azure, GCP? Uh, have you seen people successfully kind of, if you will, like roll their own, want to like manage all of it themselves? Is that ever a good idea? Managing their own Kubernetes instances? Yeah. Mm-hmm. 
Um, yeah, I would strongly advise against that. I mean, like there are there are companies out there that currently do it, but I don't I don't think that's because they don't want to use a managed Kubernetes service. It's because that they kind of hopped on the Kubernetes train earlier before the managed uh, services were kind of available. And so they're still kind of rolling their own. Um, I, 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 I personally think that's, that's um, yeah, that's, that's not really, <laughs> that's a level of weeds that's not worth getting into usually. Right. Um, let, let Amazon and Google and Microsoft, like they know how to run, you know, the Kubernetes environment in their cloud and, the nice thing about using Kubernetes is because it's kind of the, you know, de facto standard in our industry when it comes to container orchestration is that a lot of the same, you know, uh, Kubernetes manifests that you're creating or Helm charts or uh, customize uh, charts or however you're generating those can be reused when you change cloud, if you changed cloud providers, right? So um, I, yeah, I, I would not. I would definitely use a, a managed Kubernetes service and, and not think twice about it. That's right. So don't do it. You've, you've been warned. All of you. All of you found that you've been warned. Don't do it. Uh, uh, I mean, it, they are, there may be certain, you know, regulatory or data concerns that, you know, where you are using building your own Kubernetes clusters on-prem or something, right? Like if you just, if you're in the financial or health space or something really where you're just like, we really, really, really need our own physical servers or something, then sure, use something like Rancher and, and knock yourself out, right? But um, um, I, I think the cloud providers have also done a pretty good job in those regulatory environments as well, offering offering things. So um, so that's the kind of the only thing I could really think is, is if why you would want to do that. But uh, but just understand your you're taking on quite a bit of work. <laughs> <laughs> you are. That's right. Be prepared. Well, I don't know. I mean, you kind of alluded to it a little bit, like um, in the notion of hybrid cloud. I think this is probably for you know larger customers who either yeah. have a, a pretty big investment in current IT resources, right? Maybe they have data centers and a lot of hardware, or um, there are potentially regulatory issues, right, where the data just has to stay within certain um, you know national borders. And then there's, uh, I think, cost, right, too, as, as we've talked about before. I think Dropbox is, like, one of the most famous examples of, right, they were on AWS, and I think they, they actually went out and built their whole data center, right, because they felt like at their level uh, it was more cost-effective for them to, if you will, manage and own the data center than to, if you will, use AWS or some other cloud provider. So as you're kind of maybe talking to some of your larger clients or your big enterprise clients, um, are you having conversations about hybrid cloud, like, how do you guide them through kind of the decision matrix that they're, they're facing in those situations? Yeah, we, we don't have a lot of conversations actually surprisingly about hybrid cloud. Um, it's, it's interesting, you know, the cloud compute services have evolved quite a bit where, you know, if you're running an, an, a VM instance, you can do that on the cloud provider, right? Um, Kubernetes, even to an extent, right? Because Kubernetes is this open source kind of community standard. You can almost, you can almost run that on any cloud kind of interchangeably. I think people end up using one or the other, you know, for, um, you know, whether it's cost concerns and kind of who offers a good credit deal or something, right? But also functionality, right? The Google team has provided, has has some really incredible big data services, right? 
Um, that's probably like the number one of the Kubernetes managed Kubernetes from Google or big data services are the two reasons we see people pick GCP over and over again is uh, the the level of scale on the data side that Google can handle and is providing as uh, managed services and APIs to people is tremendous. Um, AWS um, has quite a bit of it it's, itself, but um, you know they they also they also do a really good job, uh, which Google is still struggling struggling to figure out. Uh, uh, is kind of more. Um, speaking to more of the business side of things, I think if you if you sit developers down and and get them to try all the different clouds and you talk to them and let them just freely pick which one they would probably prefer, Google's a really great choice for developers. Um, from the business perspective, AWS just kind of nails the whole pitch and sale and look at all these other different services we have that do all these all these different things right uh and they they do have a few things that are just further along than other providers that took their time to get up and running on the cloud like google um but we haven't we haven't had a ton of hybrid environment conversations to answer your question yeah i mean i think it's interesting because i guess what i'm seeing is there's I think everyone has some kind of announcement out, right? You know, so GCP, right? They, they've talked about Anthos really being kind of, if you will, the management platform for Kubernetes, and then you could run it in various places. One of them being on-premise as well as, um, and I think in, you know, last time they announced it or when they announced it rather, you know, they even showed, um, you know, the dream, right? It's like, Hey, you can have some, some of your compute over in AWS. You can have some of GCP, you can have some yeah. of your servers there. And so that's, you know, I think it appeals to a certain sophisticated customer, right? That sort of like really want is really concerned about, I guess, disaster recovery and also managing costs and like not, if you will, being committed to one um, provider. And then Azure, right? I think they have Arc, which is again along the same lines, probably more about yeah. managing VMs today than Kubernetes, but they're going that direction. And then uh, I think AWS, they have Outpost, but they really are. I mean, I think I think the message there is pretty clear. It's like you should just keep everything on AWS. So, so I don't know. I'm I'm actually just interested to see two things, like how how big of an adoption, you know, uh, the hybrid cloud offerings really get. Because there's always a lot of talk about them, but there's also so right. much complexity and cost. It's always like I don't know if people will do it. And then uh, ultimately. Like, which is the platform, right? Like, which one of these things really delivers on it's easy to move the workloads around? Because I think as you're kind of getting to, I think we talked about at the beginning, is like sometimes the cost of managing all of this just outweighs any of the benefits, right? You're just like, it just doesn't right. make sense for me to spend whatever, two or three guys or uh, engineers working on this and then, you know, not doing something that's relevant to the business, just managing infrastructure, which, you know, it's easy to yeah. do, right? So, um, so yeah. I'm interested. Okay, well, and and you can think of it uh, if your business outside of just the engineering department too, right? I mean, that's that's a duplicate sales conversations you need to have, legal conversations you need to have. Like it's it's uh, a significant investment to do multiple, right? Yeah, absolutely. And I think um, and that kind of goes, you know, this other area I wanted to get into is like when we think about Kubernetes, right? Like I think sometimes it's just a shorthand word for just cloud native, right? All the new technology. Right. But really, it's, you know, when we, like the more technical definition or the more simplified definition is uh, orchest uh, container orchestration, right? But then you get into, yeah. you know, the slide I always I show sometimes, you know, the CNCF like market landscape slide. And it's got like, I don't know, 400 logos on it. And it can be quite overwhelming. Um, but one of the things I thought we should maybe talk on, talk about is that, you know, service mesh, right? That's 
it seems to come out all the time. Like you, you're having some Kubernetes conversation and then people want to talk about service mesh and then usually like Istio or something like that comes up. So kind of what's your right. take on all of this? Like how do you explain Istio to some of your clients so they understand the value of it? Definitely. So Kubernetes itself has, um, you know, has tools for you to run your application and then expose that application on a load balanced single endpoint, right? We, we, Kubernetes is usually called a service and you say, Hey, this is my service. I want it to, you know, get load balanced and pointed to, and then I want it to have split the traffic between 10 different pods. We call them on Kubernetes, 10 different instances of my application, right? Um, the only thing that that can do really is round robin it, right? So it takes in a request, sends it to one, takes in another request, sends it to the next one, and so on and so forth. And it just, there's kind of dumb routing, dumb networking, right? That's kind of all you need, all you can do. If you want to do more than that, um, Istio and other service meshes kind of sit on top of this layer here and then have their own abstractions to be able to describe things like, I have version one of my application running over here. I have version two of my application over here. And I would like 40% of my traffic to go to version one and 60% to go to version two, right? You can't express things like that in the Kubernetes landscape, really. Um, if you would like to, then that's what kind of all these service meshes do is they sit on top of, of kind of this layer and then give you the abstractions to express kind of what you're doing and so um that was just an example i gave but another one is like um i want to have control over which regions or zones my traffic is going to right and if one zone is full of up on traffic then i want the backups to be these three zones in this order right um a bunch of things like that um and so yeah, the, another thing that is brought up a lot about Istio uh, is that you kind of alluded to with the whole hybrid thing is is supporting, you know, bridging kind of different pieces of architecture together and being able to express, hey, I have an application and I want traffic to flow to it this way. And, oh, by the way, Istio doesn't really know or care, but it handles it that application is actually split up between four different data centers or something. Right. Um, then, then you can express things like that. So if I'm, if I'm someone that's maybe, you know, deployed their applications, maybe using what you just said, the kind of the simplified, you know, we'll call it just you know, round Robin, the most simple yeah. version. And I'm, and I'm yeah. at least I'm either encountering some of these needs or I'm thinking ahead, like, yeah, I do want to get to this point that I have a lot more control over, you know, where I send traffic, how it's distributed and things like that. And I've, you know, I know just what you said, I broadly understand what service message I've heard of Istio. So like, like what's the next step? Is it go read about it, go figure it all out. I know Google has like, I guess, uh, Istio backs, right. It's service mesh, uh, offering, or at least I believe that's the case. Like, like how do I make the, if you will, the leap going from like, I need to do this to, if you will, not being overloaded by all the complexity to actually like being successful and kind of getting my feet wet and actually using it. Like, is there a path that you recommend people follow to get into it? Yeah. So Istio, another way to describe Istio is really, it has two components, right? So one is, uh, Istio actually is just a way of 
configuring proxies. And so when you get to the point of your application and application scale where you start to think about proxies and why would I need those? And hey, it'd be really nice if I had a proxy next to each one of my applications. Um, Istio is essentially just configures proxies. Like that's all it does. Istio is an API to, to describe how you want things to happen. And then Istio turns around and configures Envoy proxies. So Envoy is a proxy written in C by the Lyft team, and it's an open source proxy. You can go look at it, and that's kind of one of the first steps that I help think help developers think through is, you know, what is this proxy? Why would I want to use it? And looking at just the Envoy proxy itself and learning about that. And then once you understand kind of what proxies are, how you use them, what what Envoy kind of does specifically, um, then the understanding of, oh, Istio is just a an API that I can say, here's what I want. And then Istio will turn around and worry about configuring all of those running proxies, right? Right. And is that where like, the, I think is that the, when they say sidecar, right? Is that the, is that the envoy? Is, is that, am I doing that right? Or is yeah. sidecar something different? No, that, that you know, you're right. Uh, so in Kubernetes, one of the, you have several different kind of uh, patterns here and sidecar is one of them where you would say, I have an instance of my application running and on every single instance of my application, I want a, another um, instance of, a, of an application running. In this case, we would be Envoy proxy. And that's kind of the sidecar pattern is saying on every instance of my application, I also want this other instance running right next to it because um, when two containers share the same uh, pod, um, they actually share the same network interface. And so what Envoy is doing is just updating IP tables, routes, uh, and rules. And so it's updating the, the network rules for every container in that pod. And so then your application that's running is just you know, using the network as if nothing were happening. But because of the Envoy proxy running, uh, updating those IP tables rules, it's able to redirect all of your traffic to itself, do whatever it needs to do to you know, reroute or manipulate your data or retry requests or things like that or authenticate requests um, and then send it on, on, on its way, right? And in the same in reverse. So incoming requests uh, will get routed to the proxy. Envoy will you know, run through its configurations of what it may need to do and then serve it to your application as if, as if it was a request just like any other um, yeah. Okay. So I think that's it's like an interesting way to think of it as we kind of have walked through this whole process of like you know, I got my Kubernetes up, got my pods, I've got some you know some application logic in there, and then I think often I just feel like the conversation is mostly about Istio, but I think what you just said there is like maybe the the next step is just like get comfortable with Envoy, right? Like get comfortable yes. with using these proxies and yes. feeling you know kind of get your network traffic, if you will, and all that networking and all the retries because it, it'll probably will have. My guess is if you start to build something, you'll start to like find that like, oh, I've got to start doing the, either manage this network stuff myself or that'll open the door to like, oh, I could use Envoy. It'll actually do a lot of this for me, right? And then yeah. um, and then like once you've gotten familiar with that and you start to say to yourselves like, okay, I want to configure the proxies, right? I want to start writing some rules. 
then it probably at that moment, like that's where Istio sort of comes into play and it, it probably is going to be a lot more meaningful to you. Like, oh, okay, yep. now I can start to write the rules because I have Envoy and I have these proxies. So, um, Yeah, or if you want to express things in more of like the kind of cloud way, like you want to be able to say, I want to move traffic from EC, you know, US East 1, a to us east one b or something like that right like istio kind of understands those things and can put that into an envoy thing um yeah definitely i I totally agree with yeah what you're saying the roadmap is for a lot of people new to istio for sure yeah and then maybe the final part before we wrap up here is to you know as we kind of build our 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 perfect startup here is uh you know one of the things you always want to do with startups is like you know put new functionality out right like test out some new releases Mm -hmm. maybe like a b test some stuff see what people are really um what's working for people and i think that's where a lot of times people have been talking about spinnaker so i don't maybe take a few minutes and like what exactly does spinnaker do why, why should everyone care? And then give us a little, some details on how, how do we get, get Spinnaker working alongside all the stuff we've been talking about? Yeah, definitely. So um, Spinnaker is a really awesome continuous delivery tool. Uh, Netflix created it um, and then uh, they just created it internally. Google kind of heard like, oh, hey, we heard you're working on this cool tool. And then I started working on it kind of together. And then it, they uh, both, open sourced it a few years ago and so now it's completely open source anybody can go download it run it in your infrastructure and it allows you to do some some pretty advanced deployment processes but also express your release process in a way that can be automated and can be uh, visualized in, you know, a nice user interface of pipelines. And, um, and that's, that's really helpful when you want to do stuff like, Hey, I want to deploy to the staging us East environment. And if that works well, then deploy to the staging, you know, Asia one environment or something. And then if that works well, then deploy to this QA environment. And if that works well, then deploy to this one production region. And if that works well, then deploy to these six other production regions, right? Like those types of rollout processes are hard to kind of put into, uh, you know, pipelines and stages sometimes. And with Spinnaker, it makes it really easy to create these nice dependencies and to create these other stages that can just run automatically. And then you can also do some really advanced things too, like and the the most common one that is really the the where people want to get to eventually with Spinnaker, which it, it currently offers today, uh, but in your organization it takes some time to implement, is what's called canarying, and that's really really cool because canarying is really what allows um, Google and Netflix to deploy thousands of times a day, right? It's It's the concept of I have a release candidate and I think it's fine. It works. It worked fine on staging. It worked fine in my QA environment, whatever. Um, But roll it out to production. Give it a little bit of traffic. Only put up one instance of it and let it run for, you know, three hours, four hours, something. right? Right. And actually actually see how it runs. Right. Does it increase my 500s, you know, count a bunch, right? Does it uh, decrease some other metric that I'm tracking through Prometheus, right? Um, th- does it do something else that I care about, right? Um, 
if it does well, then roll it out to something else, right? Um, or, you know, roll it out to half of the instances and then let it run some more and then see how it goes, right? And then roll out to the other ones, right? Um, but that it, those types of automated rollouts that really see how the application is performing more than just running a te- suite of tests, right? Uh, you can run tests until you're blue in the face, but if you aren't actually running in your production, you won't actually see how it's behaving. And that's what enables, uh, really enables Google and Netflix to deploy an application thousands of times a day on a Friday night, on a Saturday morning. Who cares? <laughs> like literally every every commit can get its way into production if it behaves correctly, right? Yeah. Um, the the part the reason that it takes a little while to get up and running in your organization is because that process of saying, okay, what does a good release look like for me? And what does a bad release look like for me? Obviously is, you know, just very wide open. You can track that a million different ways and it's very specific to your application, your business, right? And so that you need to spend a lot of time deciding what that configuration looks like and then tuning it as you use it, right? Um, maybe, Maybe some uh, increase in this metric is a good thing. Maybe it's a bad thing. Maybe mm-hmm. maybe maybe 10% change in either direction is wrong, is bad, right? Like those are that's 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 the part that uh, takes a while and does take a lot of effort to uh, create initially and then tune as you're uh, ongoing, right? Um, but the the process of what I just said of automated releasing a strategy and then seeing how it goes and then making a decision and then doing something else off of that. Those are things that are just baked right into Spinnaker, which is really nice. You just go into the UI and you can click a couple buttons and all of a sudden you have the same deployment capabilities that, you know, a Google and a Netflix have like that's, that's really, really cool. Yeah. I think that's maybe the biggest thing to take away is as you get more mature in your organization and you want to do put whatever, for whatever reason you want to put out more releases because it's important to your business or because you need to do testing because you're trying to figure out what, what people are actually doing and you know, what makes uh, your business grow the fastest, right? It's uh, it's like everything else. It's like taking the time to put something like this in place, right? Is really what's going to let you, if you will do that kind of uh, as much as you want. And like you said, I know, I know there are like a couple different talks out there that I'm sure everyone can find on YouTube. I've seen Netflix give a talk, uh, about how they use it. I think Google's given some talks. And there's actually, I don't know, it seems like a, a fairly robust Spinnaker community at this point. So it's uh, a lot yeah. a lot to be uh, consumed if yeah. you're interested in that. I'm actually a Spinnaker contributor, and I, sp- I actually spoke at uh, the Spinnaker Summit a couple of months ago in San Diego. So uh, you can go find me on YouTube talking about Spinnaker, actually. All right, well, we'll, uh, put, uh, so. we'll put that in the show notes. And if people want more... <laughs> They can they can go get more and so so maybe I'll, yeah. you know we'll wrap it up on this question. I think one of the things um, you know we were talking about was some of this can be overwhelming, right? I think for some people, you know, yeah. if you're kind of just taking it all in and and um, and sometimes I think people they don't necess- they think to themselves like, well, this this won't apply to to my company, or I just it's like we're not the the same type of company, or we're not somebody that can get the value out of it. I just I think you know what are your thoughts on it? Like, can everyone you know get value out of this? How how do you see um, it evolving, and what's the best way for kind of a group of technologists as they kind of figure this out? Like, how should they be thinking about the value that all this cloud native technology brings? Yeah, you know, I I <coughs> excuse me, I think. You know, cloud native, really what that means to me is 
on-demand scalability very quickly and only paying for what I'm using, right? And so you can do that whether you're using VMs, you can do that whether you're using Kubernetes, you can do that whether you're going to use a more pass solution like App Engine or Fargate or, you know, Cloud Run or something like that, or even Cloud Functions or Lambda, right? Like you can you can use that type of cloud native architecture um, no matter which option you're picking. I think what what I tell a lot of people is, you know, that's those are the types of things you should be thinking about. It's not necessarily if if you want to run VMs and you are really happy with running VMs, um, that's great. Like great, I. I personally think even if you want to run VMs on your infrastructure, having your source code repositories in kind of a Docker container format is a really big win for the organization, and you can still run VMs that way. Um, but like I would, I think about those cloud native things as the the scalability, uh, the auto scaling, the auto growing, the being able to say now is consulting a company a few months ago and and I was talking to the CEO and I said you know I was I literally I was at a trade show and I talked to my CTO and said you know how much more business can we handle because so many people are getting so much great business or whatever and the CTO was like you know we can't handle any more right at, at all um, <laughs> and so the CEO had to literally stop selling business because oh. their infrastructure oh just couldn't handle it this is like heartbreaking right yeah it's, all, I, it, it's horrible right but that's not that that is the exact like, and it doesn't matter if they're necessarily on VMs or Kubernetes or whatever, right? That doesn't matter. What matters is you have a certain number of resources. You leverage the cloud to be able to scale up and down. And and so like for that company specifically, one of the things that like they were they were managing their own using um, VMs, managing their own FTP server, right? And I was like, you know, have you looked at GCS or Amazon S3, right? like these storage services where it's infinitely scalable. They have APIs and SDKs and uh, to be able to integrate into any language ever, right? Any process you want to integrate into and all of the authentication, authorization type things you want, to, you want to express and control already baked in, right? Like that's the type of managed service where you can stop managing it yourself and leverage this infinitely scalable um, situation um, that's just that's it's really really nice to use and so I I I when it comes to VMs or Kubernetes or whatever obviously I have experience and obviously there are things I enjoy and I think that engineers would behoove themselves when they kind of start a next project to look at how things have evolved and what things what things you can use to take you know less of your maintenance and less of your overall um, effort into into it like you know there are less things overall you usually have to manage when it comes to kubernetes because it it brings up you know hardware as it needs it right you don't have to worry about the exact hardware um but there are other things you have to learn right and so once you've mastered those things then it's good but i don't i don't get too hung up on vms versus kubernetes or, or other services i i want to help people you know really leverage the scalability of the cloud and being able to pay for just only what you use, right? Which is really, which is really what a lot of media, small and medium-sized companies want is we just want to pay for what we, the minimum of what we're using, but we want the ability to scale to double our size tomorrow if we had to, right? I like it. 
Well, I think that's kind of the, the perfect question then is like, well, if, uh, if people want to contact you so you can uh, help them with any of the things yeah. that we've talked about, where, um, where can they find you and where are you out there on the internet? Yeah, definitely. Um, so containerheroes.com is uh, kind of where the, the four of us uh, consultants are you know, putting stuff together and offering you know, um, some tools for people to use. Uh, you can also find me on Twitter, um, uh, Miles underscore Matthias. Um, and uh, yeah, I, yeah, that's, uh, those are probably the best places. All right. Well, we'll make sure all that's in the show notes. Uh, make sure to reach out to Miles. I'm sure if he's uh, got some cloud native problems that you want solved, I'm sure he and the team can uh, definitely help, help you out. And uh, Miles, I want to thank you for being on the show. Really appreciate it. And I want to let everyone else know it's uh, this is the first time you've ever heard of uh, Software Defined Talk. Well, you know, first of all, what have you been doing? But if you want to see uh, any of the show notes, just go to softwaredefinedtalk.com. You'll see uh, the show notes for this, all our previous episodes. And uh, if you want a sticker, we're happy to send you uh, free stickers really anywhere in the world. All we need you to do is just send me your uh, postal address to stickers at softwaredefinedtalk.com. And uh, I'll be happy to mail you as many stickers as you want. And with that, we will talk to you next time.